Let me catch my breath. If you ever wonder what a pastor does right before the sermon, he takes his kids to nursery, he downs half a power bar and tries to drink some water. So I think I'm up to speed now. We're ready to go. Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett. I'm lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, we're we're glad to have you here. We're, We're glad that you came to worship with us this morning. And you find us in the middle of a series on the book of Philippians. So if you'd like to turn there, if you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find this on page 981. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And this morning we'll be looking and reading verses 12 through 18. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, some of us very glad to be here. Very excited to be able to sing your praises, to open up your word. Some of us come very heavy-hearted this morning, in need of your encouragement. Some of us come really perplexed this morning, maybe wondering how in the world we got here. Uh, Wherever we are this morning, would you meet us? We're not here by accident, we're here at your invitation and your guiding, so we thank you. And right now, as we open up your word, would you speak to us? Would you minister to us words of life? And I pray for myself as I preach and lift up these uh, weak words that you would do something with them because they uh, point us to you in Scripture where you are revealed. It is your spirit that has to do its work. So we ask you to come and do that this morning for us, in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. And so to it we turn. The topic at hand this morning, the, the thing that, that Paul is bringing up for the Philippians and for us is obedience. He's talking about obedience. He's talking about the need for us to obey God. Now, when I say that, when you hear that word obedience, I mean, don't you just sort of kind of hear that kind of gut check? I mean, we don't even like the word, much less the concept, you know? I mean, it sounds like a restraint. And an imposition on our freedom. And, and honestly, maybe this, is, maybe this is your first time here and you're thinking, I knew it. <laughs> here I did. I came to church and once again, somebody's going to tell me about the rules. Well, hang on. That's not, that's not all we're going to talk about this morning. But uh, obedience, as Paul tells us, obedience understood properly is most certainly a part of the Christian life. It's not all, by any means, all there is to say about what it means for us to relate to Jesus. But it is what Paul talks about for us here this morning. And truthfully, there's... There's someone else in Scripture for whom obedience was uh, an incredibly important central idea. And it was Jesus. In the Gospel of John, 
in chapter 14, Jesus is on uh, the verge of his death on, as he's speaking to his disciples. It's his last night, his last meal with them before he knows he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified the next day. And if you were to read through the Gospel of John, you would see that it just exudes this relational love of Jesus as he interacts with so many different people. And here you have this very sweet moment of Jesus with his very closest friends. And he's assuring them and encouraging them. But in the midst of that speech about what is best for them, he says this to him. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As he talks to these people that he loves, he says, if you love me, then, then, you will, then you'll obey me, your Savior, your Lord, your King. If you love me, you're going to obey me. Now, as much as the word obedience might kind of catch us a little bit, I mean, we all obey things, right? There are, there are things that we give ourselves to and restrictions we take upon ourselves because there's something that we're trying to obtain or something we're trying to live in. I'm, for example, let, maybe, maybe, you're taking, maybe you're on a diet right now. Okay, what happens when you... Go on a diet. Well, you go buy the latest diet book, and you do exactly what it says. Okay, you go 14 days without any liquids of any kinds, and then you eat only carrots, right? I mean, that's, that's okay, so that's what I'm going to do. There are rules that you have to obey if you're going to put yourself in the hospital on that particular one. But, or let's say, uh, let's say if you're, you're an athlete of, of any stripe, uh, even one of the guys like me that tries to put on your running shoes and go around the block, you, you know that if, if you're going to get in any kind of shape, you have to submit yourself to a certain set of rules and guidelines or it's never going to work. You, you have to actually get up when the alarm goes off and actually tie on the shoes and go out the front door. There are things that have to happen if you're going to obtain something like being in shape. There, we, we have to obey a set of rules that we're going to live by. Now, let, let me... Uh, let me make it a little more specific, a little more relational maybe, a little more nuanced. Uh, let, let's take another kind of thing that, that, that maybe that many of us obey. And I, honestly, we, I would say we all do to some degree or, or another. Let's say that the, the thing that you are seeking and the thing you're obeying and the thing you're trying to obtain is the approval of other people. Okay? Let's say, let's say that is what you are after at some level. Well, then you're going to find yourself in different situations of your life uh, molding yourself, morphing yourself in order to meet the expectations of the people around you so you can get what you want, which is their approval, right? You're going to follow different rules depending on who you're with. William and Mary, when you call mom and dad and give them the report of the week and you want at least for things to go smoothly, you're going to you're going you're gonna to obey certain rules in that conversation. You know certain talking points that you want to make sure, like studies and homework and yes. Or what happens then when you go out with, with, with a group of, of friends that you're connected with, not just in college for any of us, and you, uh, you find yourself behaving in a certain way, fitting in with that group. Maybe uh, that's a different group than another group of, in your life. You're Christian friends, and you find yourself taking on a whole different set of unspoken rules that you're obeying there so that you can try to obtain the favor that you want. There. See, we, we, we're people who follow rules. We obey something, and many times lots of things. And that's what uh, Paul speaks about. There, uh, a number of years ago, the soft drink Sprite had the slogan, you'll remember, obey your thirst, right? And here's the point from Paul. We do. We do obey our thirst. We do what it takes to fill that thirst. We obey the deepest thirst of our soul. What are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? Paul uh, speaks to us uh, as those who would follow Jesus. He said, then, then obedience to him and the th 
more fundamentally, the thirst of our soul must be for him. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's aligning yourself, not simply, not simply with a set of rules, but with a person, a Lord, a King, King Jesus. And so Paul speaks to us about obedience, living lives in obedient response to Jesus who has died and risen from the dead for us. Okay, now here's what we see, a long way to say, here's what we see about obedience here. That Paul unfolds for us three things. The shape of obedience, the power for obedience, and the fruit of obedience. So first, the shape of obedience. Look, at, look again with me at verses 12 and 14. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Okay, Paul immediately launches into the fact that in following Jesus, we have, we have a certain responsibility, and as we've been saying, it is to obey. He uses, speaks of it in these terms of working out our salvation. Now, if, that's, that were, if we were to cut that little sentence out of our Bible and, and hang on to it as the only thing we had, only revelation from God, we, we would easily go very far wrong. Because you'd look at that and go, well, work out my own salvation. Okay, at the end of the day, it's really up to me, right? I need to obey, so at the end of the day, God is going to forgive me and save me. And that is actually the opposite of what Paul says, as we will see in a moment. When he talks about working out our salvation, he talks about putting into play, about putting to use, about uh, the thing that's already been given to us, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, It's getting that new bike that you had for Christmas that you didn't earn, but now you take it out on the road and ride it. Okay, that's what he's talking about, working out salvation that has been given to us. But the first thing you see here is when we read this, it's easy to think about this, too, in very individualistic terms. Okay, I'm supposed to go work out my salvation, whatever that means. We'll see. But you see, Paul's concern is corporate. He's speaking to us first as a body of Christians. That's been his concern throughout Philippians. A couple weeks ago, as we got into the end of chapter 1, it talked about the friction that was starting. He's alluding to the friction that starts to take place in Christian communities, like any community. And he says, you are to be humble towards each other. You're supposed to have this kind of attitude. In fact, he says, look at Jesus, who was in the very nature of God, yet took on himself a human nature, came to earth, was obedient even to a death he didn't deserve, was crucified, the most humiliating of deaths, raised again. You, said, you see, he said Jesus was marked by humility, and he uses that to say you as a community must be marked by humility as well. See, Paul's concern for the, is for their growth together. They're in this together as the body of Christ, as we are. So the first thing here is he is speaking to them, and when he talks about working at your salvation, he's talking about us. You look in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, uh, in the Greek, that's plural. My, uh, you could translate it, my beloved ones. In other words, he's saying... Y'all, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We are in this together. He wants a transformation, not simply of individual lives, but of a whole community. A whole community of people that begins to reflect the glory of God to the world around them. God's eyes are on something much bigger than simply us as individuals. He's doing something with us corporately. And that's what Paul wants us to get. Okay, so here, but here we see the shape of obedience. Now, there's a couple ways of looking at the shape of what it means to obey. First, here we see that Paul speaks of a certain spiritual shape. Spirit, certain spiritual shape. What do I mean by that? Well, look, look at the way he describes how we come before God. Verse 12. So you've always obeyed, so now also in my, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
fear and trembling. Okay, maybe you're reading this and thinking, again, that's exactly what I thought. There is the very frightening, whimsical deity with the lightning bolts, and if I cross the line, then I'm supposed to be scared that he's going to hurl one of those down at me and make my life miserable. Not literal lightning, but he's got other things in his arsenal, right? Cancer. Losing my job, right? God's out there. He's seeking us. And as soon as we mess up, here it comes. That is not what Paul is speaking of. That is not his view of God. Instead, he's building on this Old Testament picture of uh, an awe and a reverence with which we come before our God, the true and living God. Uh, Because the Bible tells us two things about God, that he is high, he is lifted up, he is morally pure, and yet he comes near to us. We see that most clearly in the person of Jesus, that he is both exalted and intimate at the very same time. Now, one author that's tried to wrestle through coming up with a good image for this is C.S. Lewis. If you're familiar with the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and others, the character of Aslan, the lion. This is Lewis trying to put these ideas together. Because on the one hand, you've got this this incredible, incredible, powerful lion. And when he roars, all of Narnia shakes. And when he roars, his enemies flee. And when he roars, even his friends clap their hands over their heads because it feels like the very rocks are coming apart. And at the same time, in the Chronicles of Narnia, you see these kids that are invited in that get to know Aslan and and just have such joy in his presence. You get these pictures of these kids running their hands through his mane, of clinging to him, of riding on his back, and he is both those at the same time. In one of the classic lines, he talks about, you know, Aslan is, he's not safe, but he's good. He's both those things. This is a kind of kind of fear and trembling that Paul is speaking about. This an awe and a reverence with which we come before our God, not because he might smite us in any moment because he's looking for a way to crush us, but because our God who is, who is lovingly disposed to us is still at the same time God. It's not our pet kitty cat. He's Aslan, right? We come before God. So there's a certain spiritual shape that's to characterize us, that we are to come with this idea of of fear and trembling, a posture of soul before him that would be receptive, that would be obedient to a God who deserves awe and our obedience. So there's a spiritual shape in obedience. But there's also maybe another way to put it is a, is a, a relational shape, that it, it plays out in certain ways in our relationships with each other. Uh, no grumbling. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Depending on the uh, translation you have, if you have the NIV, it says do everything without complaining or arguing. Uh, it'd be easy to read this in the ESV and say, do, any, do, do things without grumbling or questioning. Okay, are you saying that we can't ever ask God questions? He says something, we do it, like there's no, there, there's no real relationship. That's not what Paul's saying. Another way of translating this word would be no disputing. Okay, you know the difference between uh, a question and a dispute. Another way of saying this, and you know this if you're a parent, you know the difference between why and why when your child comes to you, Right? And you tell them something, and they say, well, why? And it's one of those opportunities where you say, well, because here's how things work, and let me tell you, and that's a good question. And there are other times when somebody comes and says, why? From one of my children, why is a vocalized pause. It comes after everything my child says. And so after every command that's given, and sometimes the appropriate response is, he didn't want extra information, he's just dodging. The correct response is, because I said so. Because I'm your daddy. I love you. I'm responsible for you because I 
I told you, right? There's, there's a time to say that as well. Uh, there's a why that is a disputing why. And, and, and Paul is here is saying that as we relate to God, we're to do it without grumbling and without disputing. Now, we said that, that this is kind of pitched to the community. Well, grumbling and disputing, as we know, are community sins, right? I mean, they're individual, too. You can grumble within yourself. You can grumble to God. But how often do we also grumble to each other? You know, what about you? What about me? We'll come to that in a minute. But what's going to change that? We're going to come in a minute to the, the power. But let, let me just say one thing here, though, that I think that one of the things that undermines our disputing and our grumbling has to be a sense of trust. Then when God speaks into our lives, when God works in our lives, that our fundamental posture is, God, I may not understand anything about what you're doing in my life right now, but I trust you. I trust you. When somebody speaks into your life, you might not know what's happening, but you know and can trust the character and disposition of that person to be able to say, even though I can't explain it, I'm not going to demand an explanation you can't give, but I'm going to trust that you are working good. And that has an effect of eroding our grumbling and our disputing because we're saying on the interior and on the exterior, we're going to, we're going to choose to live lives of trust. And we're not... We're not going to doubt the one, our God, who has shown himself so faithful to us. That we cling to the promise that God is good and he means good for us. All right, now can you imagine a life, just for a moment, free of grumbling and disputing? Can you imagine that for yourself? Some of, maybe know some people that are kind of like that. Isn't it nice to be around? That's what Paul wants for us. A life that has been set free from this, from this kind of grumbling and this kind of disputing. He wants us to be set free to obey. Now, even to ask that question, wouldn't it be nice to have a life like this? If you're like me, you know, you, maybe you know what it's like to sort of um, to say, okay, I get it. I'm not supposed to grumble and dispute. I can see how I do that. I'm going to stop grumbling and disputing, right? Tell me how that goes for you today. Tell me, tell me if you make it through lunch after this service. Because there is something that we need desperately, and it is the power for obedience. It's not simply to know what it is God wants for us, but know how in the world we are going to get there. How is that even possible? Paul speaks to us of a power that must come into us if we are ever going to have any hope of obeying in any real, heartfelt, and consistent way. He says that power for obedience comes straight from God himself. Look at verse 13. Second half of this, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then it's chapter or verse 13. He says what is foundational to that for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, this is always Paul's starting point. God works first. He says if you are in relationship with Jesus, it is because he has come and done a good work in you and turned your heart around. He is at work. He is the one who comes into work that you might actually will and work for his good pleasure. That you might actually desire what God desires. That you might actually live out a lives of, of action towards what God desires in the world. Because these two things are joined in when he comes and changes us. A changed will and a changed working out of those things. They're tied together. I saw a picture of this um, yesterday. Uh, Camper and Ben and one of, one of our other elders and I were at, at Presbytery, which is a 
quarterly meeting of, of all the churches in our denomination in this area where we do church business. And one of the things that we do is that when, um, when, when men in our churches uh, feel like God is leading them to go to seminary and become involved in full-time ministry, then they come under care of the Presbytery. And so they come to the Presbytery and they, they answer some questions about their lives and their sense of calling so that we can embrace them and encourage them in this road. And we had a slew of these yesterday, an unusually large amount. They came in like this herd from the back. And so they come and line up here. And then they, one of the questions asked is, like, tell us a little bit about your coming to faith and your own sense of call and ministry. And one after the other, they stood up and told stories about, here's where I was in life. And suddenly God broke in. And I started to want different things than I used to want. And my life started to change, maybe slowly but it began to change, really change, as, my, as it began to reflect something other than my life did before coming to know Jesus. It began to have a beauty. It began to have a holiness to it as I saw God's work in my own life. And for these men, uh, you know, that was, God, they felt God's leading to go into ministry. That's who we were talking to yesterday. But that is, that's, that's the statement of anybody following Jesus, of God broke in, started to change something. I, I now, haltingly maybe, Two steps forward, one step back, but I'm beginning to want different things. Things of God instead of the things I was coming up with. I'm beginning to live out in a way that actually honors God instead of pursues all these other things and shakes my fist at God. God's the one doing this work. That's what Paul's pointing to. He says when God comes in and changes us, there is a certain power for obedience that we must know. And, you know, we can uh, fall off this horse in one of two directions. One, maybe we think, you know, okay, uh, the willing, you know, God comes in and changes my heart and I'm full of warm, fuzzy feelings for God. But then when as soon as somebody starts asking me about why I'm living this way and that way, I don't want to talk about it. That's none of your business, right? It's about me and Jesus and feeling warm and fuzzy, not concrete obedience. Or maybe more likely for many of us, we fall off in the other direction, which is, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't even know what I really want, but I know what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to check off the little boxes and I'm going to get it done. How do you know if you're doing that? Well, maybe if you look at your own experience of obedience and following Jesus and find that your obedience is leaving you with something of a hardened heart or a sense of bitterness towards God or this sense that I'm in a contractual relationship with God and I'm doing all I can to keep up my end of the bargain and I'm not quite sure that he's keeping up his end of the bargain. In other words, a life that's marked by an absence of joy. I think Paul would say, maybe we have one without the other. We're shooting for the working without God's work in us for the willing of his will. Uh, we had an announcement this morning about the Reformation, Reformation Day that's coming up. Reformation, when we celebrate uh, the work of God in, in, in history in bringing back to the forefront for the church the foundational uh, truth of God's grace coming after us. And one of the figures at the center of the Reformation uh, was Martin Luther. And prior to Martin Luther's change of life when he came to see that, that, that he had to depend wholly on Jesus, he was somebody who was trying to get it all right. He was a monk, he was in a monastery, and he would spend long hours in confessional where he would go and one of his superiors in the monastery would hear his confession and he would go on for hours. Reportedly, his confessor would fall asleep. At one point, he told Martin Luther, he's like, look, go do something that's really worth repenting of and then come back and let's talk about it. This is killing me. Uh, in fact, one time one of his confessors said this to him after, after hearing his confession. He said, Martin, do you love God? And he said, love God, sometimes I hate him. Right? 
trying to obey and obey and obey without a change of life and a change of heart. Paul says that we must know the power of the gospel at work in us if we're going to really live lives of obedience, if we're really going to be changed. He, said, he points, it to us, points us to it here in verse uh, 13 when he says, it's God who works in you. You must remember this. God is the one doing this work who initiates it. You can't work out in your life what he is not working in to you. And he says it again down in verse uh, 16. He talks about us holding fast to the word of life. He's talking about the, the word of life is the good news of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. He says that is how you go forward in obedience, and that is where you find the power for obedience and knowing that God is at work in you, that the gospel is true for you. That God, if you have come to a relationship with, in, with God through Jesus, you, there is nothing left to earn. There is nothing to do to gain one ounce of God's favor. That there will never be a day where he is more pleased with you than he is right now. You see, it ends this life of this anxious striving. Is God, is God pleased with me today? Have I done enough today? What boxes do I need to check off today? Because the gospel tells us that God's love comes on the front end, not the tail end. Our obedience comes on the tail end. God invades us with his love. He pours it out on us in Jesus and then says, now let's take the bike out on the road. Let's learn what a life of obedience and responding to this grace really looks like. The power for obedience is having those two things in the right place. What comes first and what comes next? It is always God's love first. There is nothing left for you to earn. And that means we can take all our little checky boxes and to-do lists and uh, records of our good obedience and achievement and we can, we can toss it out the window. You can be done with it if you're holding on to those to reassure yourself that God loves you. He does. Now, what would it look like to live a life that lives in his fullness, that lives in his joy, that lives in obedience? Because we not only have a king, we have a king who loves us and whom we now love. It's been said that love is a better motivator than fear, and that is a gospel truth. We're to hold fast to the word of life, the power for obedience. Okay, finally, we've got shape of obedience, the, the power for obedience. And, and then lastly here, we see the fruit of obedience. In verses 15 and 16, you can sum it up this way. We shine. We shine. It's the fruit of obedience. Read, read with me again. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Think about the words that he uses. He says that we're going to be a people who shine now, like lights in the world. As another translation says, like stars in the universe. He says, we're going to shine that way. We're going to, look at the words he uses. We're going to be blameless and innocent. That's how God views us in Christ. He tells us to be that here. We might be blameless and innocent. And he's echoing what he's already prayed for them and for us in chapter 1. Listen to this, chapter 1, verse 10. He says this, uh, My prayer is that your love may abound more and more so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
You hear that? He's praying they'll be pure and blameless. And here he's saying that is, the, that is the outcome of God's good work in us as we obey, as we shine. He says that, that means us. He says pure and blameless. He says that we might be children of God without blemish. Can you imagine that? That when we uh, look in the mirror, no blemishes, nothing to hide, nothing to cover up. It means that when we walk out before God, we can get our picture taken from either side, and we're okay with that, right? But that's how God sees us. And he says this to them, the fruit of obedience, he says, this shining is going to happen in the midst of a very dark place. He says it's going to happen in the midst of uh, this crooked and twisted generation, this picture of this dark, dark place. And he was speaking 2,000 years ago about life in Rome, and it is true of life everywhere all the time, of a world that is turned against and away from God. It is a dark place. It's twisted. It's been yanked out of shape. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And Paul says, you are going to shine in that dark world. In fact, in other places he says, I called you out of that dark world so that you could shine for me, so that you would know life now. That very dark world is the one that we interact with all the time, and it is the world, the, the world that Jesus loves because he came to seek and save the lost. It's the very world that he stepped down into in chapter 2 when he took on flesh, came to live among us. He was not frightened by this world. He did not run away from it, but he went in mission to it. And that's where he calls us as well, that we might be lights in this dark world. Here's what uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says on this passage. He says, what Paul is saying is not that the Philippians are to be a sign of light and beauty in a world of darkness and ugliness. It is that. But he says they are to be a sign of God's new life in a world that knows only the way to death. Lights that lead to life. And had it been your experience that beauty attracts us? The beauty, it arrests us, it stops us. Have you ever been driving in your car and you saw a sunset and you pulled over to the side of the road and just sat there so that you could watch it? Or on a walk and done the same thing? Or maybe, maybe it's been relational for you. Have you ever had one of those moments with your friends where in the midst of it, you kind of had this out-of-body thing where you sort of took a step back and you said, you know, this is just beautiful. I'm here with some of my closest friends the joy in this room is almost tangible. It is beautiful, and it stopped you. Because beauty arrests us. It turns us around. And that is what Paul is saying for us. He says, living these beautiful lives of obedience, he says, it is arresting to the world. It is going to be like these beautiful lights shining in a very dark place. I've waited for two weeks before I uh, tried to pull out, you know, uh, an illustration from the U2 concert a couple weeks ago, one of the highlights of my entire life. <laughs> but here we were in the stadium in, uh, at UVA, and it's 10.30 at night, and it's dark, and there are tens of thousands of people. And at one point, all around the stadium, everybody pulls out their cell phones and flips them open. And there are these tens of thousands of lights everywhere. And it was beautiful. I have never thought a cell phone was beautiful. <laughs> this was beautiful. And it was just this picture of these lights coming out of the darkness. Paul says that's what we are like when we follow this Jesus who's called us into a relationship with himself, who has loved us and calls us to obey him. Our lives will be beautiful and radiant like that. And it is a radiance that does not end. That's Paul's final point. Verse 16, look what he says. 
He says, uh, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Again, he's done this before in the letter. He talks about the day of Christ, the day when Jesus returns. He says, when you live lives like this, beautiful lives like this that shine, they're going to shine until the day that Jesus comes back. The day that Jesus comes back with us and celebrates with us in person the beauty that he has wrought in our lives, in this world through us. A world filled with light instead of darkness. That's what we're called into. That's what God is doing. And that's what he's doing through us. Through something that often feels so mundane to us like obeying. He's doing this glorious thing. And he finds it beautiful. And he says that many in the world will find it beautiful as well. As they see the light of Jesus shining. And it leads them from a dark place into light as well. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you give us lives that shine, that are beautiful, that are made beautiful by our grateful obedience. So we pray even this week that you would, where we need it, that you would dredge up the places of life that we're trying to avoid, that we might bring them into the light, that we might know your healing and grace and forgiveness, and we might know more uh, the beauty of obedience, which calls us to life, not death. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus.